Well, this isn't much of a horror movie. Where are the rock and roll musical numbers? podcast is what's in the box my name is graham bryant and if the hero kills 100 demons i'd be the forgettable number 39 and who do i have with me here today my name is amber woodward and if you have a struggling meat pie shop have i got a suggestion for you and we are two dressed up freaks who go to the midnight feature who post our ratings on letterbox during the credits uh amber what have we been watching lately well, you've been watching more than me, to be uh, honest. I've had, I've had a little bit of spare time. It's been a quick turnaround since the last one. Also, not much has been coming out, but we're hoping to fix that soon. Oh, yeah. We'll be seeing plenty soon. Oh, yes. I recently watched Blonde. Which you loved, right? Yes. I, hi- <laughs> I highly recommend that one to everyone else. We are personally looking forward to a large swath of films uh, soon. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, the Denver Film Festival starts um, next month, or uh, early in the month, and we have got a list of five movies that we're going to go see. Mm -hmm. Some of them we have been waiting a long time to see, and some of them are kind of newer on the radar. Just taking it out. We're just going to see them on a whim. Um, So probably the most hotly anticipated is uh, Holy Spider. Yeah. Which (laughs) is supposed to be pretty brutal. It's a serial killer movie. Set in Iran Mm -hmm. about a serial killer who targets women, which feels kind of relevant right yeah, now. Yeah, in the news a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's also the one that premiered at Cannes and then I believe won the honor of the most people walking out of it. Yeah, it had a lot of controversy. So I feel like it's very polarizing in regards to whether the graphicness in it is going to be effective or not effective. Mm-hmm. And you know, exploitative or not. Right. And after having just seen Blonde, I'm kind of a little bit more sensitive and mm, cautious about that. Right. When I went into Blonde initially, I was like, oh, well, maybe it's just really intense. And I'm like, mm-hmm. no, that wasn't the problem. The problem was was it didn't have much else going for it. Right. And it was it, all exploitation, it, no substance. Very bad faith. Mm-hmm. Done in bad faith. Yeah. We're also going to see Klondike, mm-hmm. which I think premiered earlier in the year, but now we're having having the chance to go see it. I think a Ukrainian film Mm -hmm. has to do with Crimea, I believe. Mm -hmm. 2014. Um, Right. Very apropos, very in the news. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know a whole lot else about it, though. Which is good, going into it. We're also going to see Godland, which has a lot of strong reviews. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing Sick of Myself, which looks like a very disturbing and dark comedy about terminal illness the review that i heard um that got my attention about it was uh comparing it to worst person in the world and saying these are the actual worst people in the world i hate that that's like what we're trying to aspire to now with every release it's just like okay but what if we actually created the worst (laughs) person in the world i'm like no and then we're also seeing quiet girl which has a lot of acclaim, but mm-hmm. I know very little about it. It's set in Ireland, right. I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm very excited for that one as well. So we will be watching that 
within a couple weeks from now, actually. Mm -hmm. And then I think we plan to have a quick turnaround time of recording an episode about our experience at Denver Film Fest. Right. I think, are those the only five you're going to see? Those are the five I currently have tickets for. Sure. I think our viewing of Godland Mm -hmm. runs at the same time as The Whale. And that would be the other one that I actually would really want to see because I believe Samuel D. Hunter, who was the playwright, is going to receive an award from Denver Film Festival at that screening. And so maybe we need to move our Godland viewing? I don't know. Uh, Recently, Criterion notably had a huge flash sale where it was 50% off of all of their in-house Blu-rays and DVDs. A lot of people that I follow on Instagram were very excited about. Yeah. Um, I myself got copy of The Manchurian Candidate, Rest in Peace, Angela, and uh, Moonstruck, which is a romantic comedy I really enjoy. But then, a couple days later, notably, uh, about 20% of their staff got laid off as they're making moves ahead. Mm-hmm. And so I just thought it was interesting to note the timing of them having a pretty significant sale and then have that restructuring happen yeah. only like two days later maybe people didn't buy enough movies i doubt that's <laughs> what's going on maybe that it there's a lot of speculation that can happen around yeah, that with definitely. physical media but amber what are we talking about today uh so our list today is horror musicals the weirdest subgenre. the list is originally by luciano razia But we added a few extra ones on there. Right. And we will go into that later, which titles we added. But it's a wide-ranging list of movie adaptations, cult hit films that were then adapted to the stage later and have pro shots out for them. And we also have a few bizarre passion projects (laughs) that are included within the list as well that don't have any adaptation translation. So basically what we're saying is that in the spirit of horror, as we had defined it in our previous episode, there's not a uniform way to approach a horror musical. This is kind of also just an excuse to talk about all of the shows that I have either worked on or want to do in the future. (laughs) I love each and every one of these titles on this list. And so I'm very excited to get into it. These are fun. Some of them I've seen before. Some of them I have watched for the first time. Mm -hmm. It's a very quirky list. I think they are united in that if you make a horror musical, you have to really be dedicated to both genres. And that's not typical of people in horror or in musical theater. The crossover is very specific. And I also think that the pipeline is very strong. I know so many people in musical theater who also have a fascination or obsession with horror movies Mm -hmm. or that genre. So I think there's an unspoken link between the two that doesn't often get explored. So I was really excited when we came up with the idea for this one. We're not going to go into specifics about history because it's kind of loose it's kind of loosely defined because they're nine films that are very much different in time and in style i had an inclination to go down a rabbit hole about how the horror genre and rock and roll music get linked together so often it Mm. seems like they kind of go hand in hand most of the time and in a great majority of the titles on this list that happens to be the case so i did a little digging 
And how we defined horror in our previous episode is that it's an impurity of form, classification, and meaning. I then found an article called Music and Horror, What Makes Sound Scary by Zoe Sonis, who described that the characteristics of scoring a horror film are minor scales, dissonant notes, harsh texture, and pulsating rhythms. So what genre of music tends to share those traits? Rock and roll and Mm. horror movie scores. So went into a little bit of digging and into the history of using rock and roll in films that would eventually go over to horror. It started out as early as 1955 with a title called Blackboard Jungle. It was a high school crime drama that opened with the song uh, Rock Around the Clock Tonight. Okay. And that was like one of the first notable uses of a rock and roll radio hit in a film. And then later, of course, we had films like Jailhouse Rock in 1957 that starred Elvis Presley. That was pretty much like rock and roll has entered the silver screen. Mm Mm-hmm. And so then uh, about a year after Jailhouse Rock, we had The Spider in 1958, which the plot is a giant spider is revived by the power of rock and roll high schoolers, and then that spider terrorizes the rest of the town. So this demonic, rambunctious music awaken the spirit of this great beast, and then the whole film is them having to deal with that mess. Damn, I really want to watch that now. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Um, And then slightly later, there would be a subgenre of films called the Beach Party Movie, have photogenic people wearing swimsuits and having dance parties on the beach and listening to rock music. It would mostly feature artists and bands that would just star in the film, Mm -hmm. but they would just use the film as a vehicle to play their songs and the plot wouldn't really matter to connect those songs. Does that sound familiar to some of the titles we're going to be talking about today? Yeah. (laughs) So then of course, late 1960s, you had the summer of love, counterculture, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, the sex pistols. And then in 1978, In the European release of George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, it was one of the first notable films that had a prog rock scoring. Uh, It was scored by the band Goblin, who did the same music for Suspiria. And that became a huge marker of rock and horror going together. Mm -hmm. Not Not as a demonic scare thing, but as a mood setting, atmospheric tone. Sure. So on that note, Amber, what movies have we seen this time around? So we open, of course, with the quintessential horror musical, the one that has kind of both words in the title, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm -hmm. We listened to a lot of that. Mm -hmm. uh, Graham, in fact, had a staging of it recently that was really fun. What has been your history with the Rocky Horror Picture Show? Uh, So I first saw it in college because every year at the very beginning of the school year, they would get an inflatable screen and put it up on the lawn and people would come and watch it. All the guys would like raid their girlfriends' closets for lingerie so that they could do the costume contest midway through. Mm -hmm. It was very fun. Yeah. So was it like a full shadow cast treatment and all that? It wasn't a full shadow cast, but you know, we had all the shout outs and everything Mm -hmm. and, um the costume contest and there would be you know people who were like running around rocky horror was a huge part of my youth i think i started seeing it when i was about 16 in houston there was the river oaks theater that would have it 
once or twice a month mm-hmm. on Saturday nights. And it was a whole thing that my high school would go to. Had a huge part of me kind of coming out of my shell as a theater kid and as a teenager. Uh, I would bring large groups to the screening every October in college. And yes, as, as you had mentioned, I had the fortune to work with a company called Family Theater Company, where we directed a all disability production of the Rocky Horror Show. And that was a job that I was preparing for for a long time because we added in all the interactive elements and it was just such a special experience. We also watched because it was something that I think we both kind of had on our radar and were not really inclined to watch, but then finally did. We saw Repo the Genetic Opera. Right. So what were your thoughts on that? Oh, man. On our first feeling. It was a 2008 movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I say that, and I mean it was a 2008 movie. It not was 2007. Not 2007. Like, you could not confuse it for another time. It is so <laughs> 2008 that it is not funny. It, like, it's okay. Mm-hmm. It was a fine watch, but it is so mired like so deep in its time it feels like a period piece almost yeah you know it definitely has that style of filmmaking Mm -hmm. attached to it and i understand the appeal it is not for me Mm -hmm. but i get how it kind of was following in the shadow of the rocky horror picture show and i think as a film they were tailoring it to be a midnight Mm-hmm. like feature and I just don't think it landed that hard for me. I will say one of the songs in the album I actually had listened to a few times after we had watched the movie, but other than that it didn't stick around with me as much mm-hmm. as I wanted it to. Was impressed with Paris Hilton though. I think it's a really interesting movie because as you were talking about horror and rock and roll, it's like the next incarnation of the rock and roll musical because it takes this very 2008 like screamo emo approach to rock and roll mm-hmm. and it incorporates it into a musical yeah um and it's very interesting it's blending the genres of opera with that form of metal mm-hmm. because the stage version came out in like 2002 and then they adapted it to the screen mm-hmm. and i also think that they um There felt like a little bit of insecurity for a movie that's this bold. It felt like it didn't completely trust its audience fully, Mm, in a way. Um, We can talk about that a little later on. We also, on our list, is a title that has a little bit of significance to each of us. Mm -hmm. uh, Little Shop of Horrors, directed by Frank Oz. What is your experience with that film? I actually only saw it for the first time few years ago Mm -hmm. and instantly fell in love with it because it is just so campy. Mm -hmm. You can tell it's on a soundstage. It is just like so proud of itself. It's Mm -hmm. so iconic and I just love the music Um, and actually it is the reason we got to know each other. It was, yeah. Um, We first met 
over an app and we started messaging each other. Mm. One of the first things we were talking about was like what movie we like enjoyed that we saw recently or what movie would you recommend? I, I had asked you, you, you had described yourself as a film nerd. And mm. so I said, mm-hmm. hey, what are three movies that I need to watch this week? I am bored. Give me three of your personal recommendations. And one of my recommendations, uh, because I had seen it recently, was Little Shop of Horrors. Which is literally the reason I got into theater in the first place, was I saw that film, I had done a deep dive on it on Wikipedia, and I absolutely loved that story, and Alan Micken's score, and that freaking puppet. I love <laughs> puppets. If you put a puppet in it, I will go and watch it. Was It was a real treat to be able to find a list that incorporated that and kind of bring it back full circle. Also included on our list is a film that has pretty big local significance to the area that we live in. We saw Cannibal the Musical, which is based on the story of Alfred Packer, local renowned cannibal. Mm -hmm. Supposed. Supposedly. The movie Um, doesn't think so, but yeah. (laughs) Um, which is, I didn't know this when I saw it, but is by the same people who make South Park. Mm-hmm. Matt Stone and Trey Parker. And also has a little bit of a funny backstory because Graham watched it for the first time while preparing to play Alfred Packer in <laughs> a uh, school production. Right. We So Matt Stone and Trey Parker had created the film as one of their final projects during their undergrad at CU Boulder, which is where I'm currently attending. And so a lot of it was shot in local areas and the dining hall on campus is actually named the Alfred Packer Bar and Grill uh, because the students got to vote on what the dining hall was called. And student, you know, college students are kind of (laughs) grim. Yeah, exactly. But also like the school embraces it fully because it's these big names and this like really interesting myth revolving around the area and so we were doing short little halloween vignettes and they saw me and said graham we need a cannibal you look like the part (laughs) and so i had a lot of fun playing alfred packer and even going on stage and making slight allusions to the musical that we both watch it is a grim nonsensical college student version of Oklahoma that uh, it presents itself as a film that was shot in 1954 but was considered too grim for the public to view and so what we're watching is actually an edited restored version of the film itself it is so absurd I will definitely be talking about it later on but it is a film that I have grown to appreciate more over time. Mm-hmm. And I also have grown up loving Matt and Trey's work. So it was kind of cool to be entrenched in this history and be able to talk about it again on the show. Yeah. Uh, the next one on our list was Phantom of the Paradise, which is a pre-Phantom of the Opera kind of rendition of Phantom of the Opera. Right. And pre-Andrew Lloyd Webber's right. version of Phantom mm-hmm. of the Opera. And also came out right before Rocky Horror Picture Show, which I thought was pretty shocking, considering how similar the two are in tone Mm -hmm. and kind of presentation. And also just because I've never heard about this film until about like a month ago. Right. And it's completely scored by Paul Williams, who's one of like my favorite musicians and does like five different gothic horror stories into a single rock musical that also is a broad commentary on rock and roll music and the recording business around it in mm-hmm. general. 
And I can't believe how much fun I had with it for something that it seems like nobody talks about. Right. And we'll talk a little bit more in a minute Mm -hmm. about the kind of subculture that grew up around it. Yes, absolutely. And then, of course, we have Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street, as adapted by Tim Burton. I think this is, as a horror musical, it is the quintessential horror musical because it is Mm -hmm. the one that is most famous, like... On Broadway, it's had the most success Mm -hmm. as a horror musical, both in and out of the realm of film. It definitely kind of feels, which is weird because it feels to me like an outlier on this list. It does. Because it has this kind of level of prestige behind it. It's Stephen frickin' Sondheim. Mm -hmm. This apparently is the only adaptation of his work that he's ever approved of and enjoyed. Interesting. I do find interesting because I think a lot of fans might disagree. I know quite a few people who love Sweeney Todd but don't like this version Mm -hmm. and of course you have a bunch of Tim Burton fans who love this rendition of Sweeney Todd. Notably though it pissed off a lot of people who were not in either camp because the trailers that came out for it featured no singing whatsoever. So they thought that it was a movie about Johnny Depp being a serial killer barber and the very first thing that happens is Anthony singing on the boat And it's not, like, even creepy. It's very much, like, beautiful and pretty. Mm -hmm. I think I talked about this on a previous episode. I'm sure I have. But I find it so funny that the marketing could fuck up that bad and not advertise that the movie is mostly going to be singing. Mm -hmm. Like, it is an opera. Significant. Yeah. (laughs) Also on this list is one of my personal favorite musicals. I still want to work on it someday. Evil Dead the musical. It is a fan-made adaptation of the first two films with dialogue from the third Evil Dead film, Army of Darkness. It is one of the most passion-driven, pure, like, nerd power stage musicals that I've ever had the pleasure to watch. There's a great pro shot of it. It's up on YouTube right now from 2003 that has the original Canadian cast. And it has so many inside jokes that are specifically directed to the fans of the film franchise. And it is so, I think, affirming and exciting to see a work like that. Uh, And speaking of movies that came from other movies, Heathers, the musical, Mm -hmm. is based on Heathers, the movie from the 80s was adapted to be an off-Broadway musical and then pro-shot on the West End. Right. Which also has kind of its own little cult following. I know a lot of people were obsessed with this musical Mm -hmm. in middle school. Yes. My personal take on it is it's weird to have a high school version of a musical about students in high school and set in high school. Like, who are you censoring this for besides the parents? Mm-hmm. I, d- I don't see the point of that. And I think we both have opinions about the West End mm-hmm. production of it. But also specifically, we were debating whether or not this counted as part of the subgenre. Mm-hmm. Because it, like, obviously is very candy-colored. It's very much a comedy. But it also has a pretty significant body count and mm-hmm. some of those elements of, like, psychological thriller and horror within it and so 
it just came out. I wanted an excuse to watch it. That's really why I put it on the list. But other than that, like, what do you think overall? Do you think we, it should qualify on it's this list? It's so interesting because, like you're saying, it's very dark in tone and has a body count. Like, mm-hmm. there are deaths that in a different setting would be horror movie deaths. Mm-hmm. But isn't quite a horror? Mm-hmm. So it's it kind of toes the line of, like, what is included and what is not included in horror and why. It also has that huge element of social commentary right. in it as well, which mm-hmm. we had talked about last time. And then finally, rounding it out, we have one of my personal favorites, uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas. One that I hope is never adapted to the stage <laughs> because I just think it's so pure and it's so perfect. It's the one that I watch every Halloween. It's also kind of feels like an outlier, isolated from everything else. But it is also gorgeous, and you can't really talk about Halloween without this one coming up because it dominates almost every spirit Halloween store <laughs> that you walk into, and I think it has a special place in a lot of horror fans' hearts. Yeah, and so this list has a lot of diverse movies, mm-hmm. kind of a lot of outliers, but also they fit together in a really interesting way. Mm-hmm. And I noticed as we were going through all of them, they kind of play with the line between horror and comedy. Mm-hmm. Like, I think with the exception of a couple of them, most of them are not playing straight into horror. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are kind of finding this niche between horror and comedy that kind of lands in this camp realm. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is very true of Rocky Horror Picture Show, of Cannibal the Musical, of Evil Dead, uh, Little Shop of Horrors. Like, these are movies that are not straight comedy, but they're mm-hmm. not straight horror. And they do this kind of tongue-in-cheek thing that even you'll see in Sweeney Todd in a couple of the songs, like you see in, you know, A Little Priest. One of my favorites, um, yeah. That there is this kind of like, oh, this is really grim, but we're going to make fun of it. We can't get through the story without Mm -hmm. kind of winking at the audience and getting them on board with the concept. Mm -hmm. If we presented it as this alienating, shocking thing, Mm -hmm. then I don't think it would be nearly as fun or as effective. But by creating this like pun-filled eight-minute musical number Mm -hmm. that is just making puns about eating people everybody's immediately on board and then it's intermission and then we come back and we're like, okay, we're here with the concept. Let's see how this ends. I think musical numbers are so kind of antithetical to what a pure horror film is. But what does that mean? Like if you were to think of your average box office horror, like a Halloween horror movie or like... Mm -hmm. Barbarian or Smile or think of mm. something that came out recently. Well, you know, see, one of these mm-hmm. movies that you go to see to be scared. Mm-hmm. Like, the shock factor. I think it would be ruined. Mm-hmm. Like, the mood would be ruined by people bursting out into song. And mm-hmm. so there has to kind of be this give and take with the audience of like, yes, this is not a straight horror. We're not just mm-hmm. trying to shock you because if we were doing the theatricality of singing right now that would take you out of it so i want to challenge that a little bit because i think you're right that in the 
common concept of what a horror movie is that that would be alienating. And if it's shit, that is exactly what happens. But some of the films that you mentioned, like Barbarian, which just recently came out, really plays with what you assume is going to happen Mm -hmm. and with those assumptions. And so I think that's what makes horror musicals so special is because Mm -hmm. they lean into that spirit of what we had discussed before of not having a purity, of like challenging that idea and pushing against it. Mm -hmm. And it's weird how most musicals actually kind of lend themselves into a darker subject matter Mm -hmm. because they suspend logic for just a second to go into emotion and into pure character expression so with the right melody you can be swept in to agree or sympathize with any character even evan hansen uh, (laughs) in any given moment so while i like that thinking i think that's exactly why this rules why this genre is a paradox you know like if you walked into the conjuring and they started singing you would be like I'm here for a Hollywood horror movie. Like, mm-hmm. what is this? And I, I think Halloween Ends had a little bit of pushback with that. With the, it's, I think what we're kind of tapping into is a discrepancy, a discrepancy between marketing and presentation. Fair. Sometimes yeah. there can be two separate entities where one is just trying to get you into the theater and the other is trying to challenge you. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that can cause a bit of a conflict. I just thought it was an interesting thing to notice how all of these films Mm -hmm. incorporate this ironic comedic tongue-in-cheek like I was saying kind Mm -hmm. of way of approaching the subject um, rather than straight on like we're gonna scare you this is awful Mm -hmm. and keep you in suspense right Mm -hmm. so we're gonna just go into a few different subjects about all of these films and talk about some little commonalities they all have one obviously that's very prominent with some of these titles is that they are cult hits they have they have gathered a very loyal following that isn't exactly mainstream but is very publicly prominent Mm -hmm. to the mainstream Obviously, we have to start the discussion with Rocky Horror specifically because it's the one example that comes to mind for people. Mm -hmm. So the doing a bit of research and obviously having followed the film for a very long time, this movie initially bombed when it was released. Uh, There are stories of both Meatloaf and the director attending empty theaters in the Midwest and watching the movie on their own. It was only when they started to push it towards a midnight movie-going crowd that it started to pick up and gain traction. Uh, Another thing that I think makes it work very specifically, obviously, is we have to talk about Tim Curry Mm -hmm. and his presence within the film. According to some research that I did, he had based the character of Frankenfurter off of Queen Elizabeth II. I had no idea. And started mimicking some of her speech patterns in order to give Frank this sort of taboo-feeling poshness with obviously this huge raunchy factor to it. And of all people to be a fan of that performance was Princess Diana Spencer herself who Tim Curry had a meeting with her and with now King Charles III, and she specifically said to him that his performance in Rocky Horror completed her education. (laughs) She had a huge crush on this man, and I don't think he knew how to feel about that. (laughs) 
a lot of people have found community within the film. And I found one thing that I didn't know about until this morning. There is a theater in Munich, Germany called the Museum Lichtspiel, which every weekend since June 24th, 1977, they have played the Rocky Horror Picture Show on a Saturday. That's no, dedication. No shadow cast, just they roll the movie in a theater specifically designed to look like Frank's throne room. Wow. I saw pictures of it. It looks like it's a set from the film. And it's incredible that they've kept up that tradition for so many decades. Mm-hmm. And then another one that kind of has a cult following is Phantom of the Paradise. Mm-hmm. And this one is an interesting case because it has a cult following, but very specifically located in Winnipeg. In Canada. Mm-hmm. In one town, it bombed everywhere else, but for some reason it kept running in Winnipeg, specifically. Right, and apparently the super fans of Phantom of the Paradise are called Peggers. They're from Winnipeg. Of course! So they're so they're <laughs> Peggers. And actually, the Phantom of Paradise had a documentary that's come out recently mm-hmm. called The Phantom of Winnipeg, mm-hmm. um, and is all about how people are obsessed with this film. Right. Um, And, like, the subculture that grew up around it and how all of the actors and the director and all of these people who were involved with it kind of became a family because they just kept returning to Winnipeg. I want to see it so bad, but it's still not out of, like, there's no wide release of it. Mm -hmm. But, like, there are people in Winnipeg that made their own helmets of the Phantom that they would wear out to the midnight screenings. Or there was even screenings where the actors and writers would come back to Winnipeg to do another screening of it. And one of the actors, uh, Peter Elbing, who is in nominally a band called in the film called The Juicy Fruits, who then shortly after become a Beach Boys-esque mm-hmm. band called The <laughs> Beach Bums, which then become a prog rock band called The Undead, all mocking the constant rat race of trying to keep up with cultural trends, package it, and sell it as music. Right. Um, He would go up on stage and perform with fans during his numbers in the Mm -hmm. film, and which is so endearing. I want to see this film so bad. Also, allegedly, Peter Elbing specifically endorsed a remake in the future done by a super fan of the film, Edgar Wright. Which, if he were to make a version of Phantom of the Paradise, this obscure rock, folk rock musical that, like, combines five different gothic horror novels into one, (laughs) I would so want to see that so badly. I think that it would be so interesting to resurrect this film, Mm -hmm. because the only place I'd ever heard of it was on this list. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's such a good movie. Musical theater it's nerds. so fun. Musical theater nerds know about this, apparently. Like, I heard about this film from one person who recommended it to me a month prior. And then when I saw it on this list, I went, oh, well, we have to do this because I heard that it was very good. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it was going to be, like, the start of this whole trend. Because it, it is the earliest chronological film on this list mm-hmm. that kind of merged rock and roll and campiness with all of these horror elements and the sadness and tragedy Mm -hmm. and practical effects. And it's just so, so fun. And to like be perfectly clear, like it is essentially the story of Phantom of the Opera, Mm -hmm. except placed in modern times in the seventies 
following this musician who is writing a rock musical of... He's writing an opera of Faust. Faust, Of the novel Faust, Mm -hmm. yeah. But also this incorporates some like Dorian Gray vibes and some other things. Cask of Amontillado. Yeah, and it's just so fun and so Mm -hmm. wild and you have no idea what you're getting into i cannot recommend it enough and then we also have uh repo the genetic opera i (laughs) totally i totally see how it is a midnight sensation Mm -hmm. i can see people wanting to wear the costumes and be in that kind of emo grungy right kind of aesthetic and Mm -hmm. all meeting up with each other I've looked up photos and it looks like a bland version of Rocky Horror Shadowcasts. Which, by the way, if it isn't clear, Shadowcasts are when dedicated fans of the film dress up and do a staged performance of the film as the film is happening. So in an interactive, slightly tongue-in-cheek way of recreating everything you're seeing on the screen. Mm -hmm. With Repo, I've only seen photos of the costumes And it's like less colorful, less flashy versions. Whereas in Rocky Horror, you have all the silver and gold and stark imagery. It's hard to get that from the kind of design that they had in Repo. Mm -hmm. And so I'd be very curious to attend one of these, but I'm not sure how effective it would be. Or even if it has lasted uh, into today, I have no idea. Sure. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think... Like you were saying, it kind of models itself off of Rocky Horror, but you don't see it playing twice a month at a local theater, you know, like Rocky Horror will. I think it's less accessible than Rocky Horror because Rocky Horror has songs that are catchier, for one thing. Okay, yeah. Like, they're easier to get into into their easier to remember. Everybody knows the time warp. But but... Zydrate Anatomy. (laughs) But like Repo the Genetic Opera goes hard on the opera part. Like Mm -hmm. it's very grunge, but it also is very opera. So it goes like up and down and they're singing what they're saying. And it's like a very hard to isolate one song and be like, this is the one I'm going to listen to over and over. It reminded me of Annette. That came out a year mm-hmm. ago and not in a good way. Just very quickly, if you don't know what Repo the Genetic Opera is, it's a dystopian story about a world where people are obsessed with body modification and if they are indentured because of the expensive rates of surgeries, uh, they are able to have the organs or surgeries that they that they had take place uh, repossessed Mm -hmm. by an assassin known as the Repo Man. That's the premise. Uh, It doesn't stick with that premise very long. It then goes into a kind of standard opera setup with an aesthetic placed on top of it. And there definitely is that self-aware humor and some funness with it. I just didn't get it on this initial viewing. Also, just to mention, there is... Another movie from 2010 called Repo Men. Right. With Jude Law, which has the same basic premise of, like, if you can't pay for your transplanted organ, it gets repossessed. Mm -hmm. Um, Which plays it much more straight and Mm -hmm. is much more like a thriller, sci-fi thriller. Just throwing that out there, because I saw that years ago and I didn't know it was based around this 
other very campy, weird concepts. Yeah. If you're interested in that concept, I would also just recommend looking up the segment of live organ transplants from Monty Python, The Meaning of Life. (laughs) It's a very short segment that's very gory and very silly. You'll get basically the same effect in a much shorter time. Kind of going into the other types of films that we saw on this list, we have a lot of stage shows that were adapted from a film and then expanded into the world of a stage musical. Mm -hmm. To start off with, we have Heather's. What was your opinion of seeing that transported from the screen, from the original cult hit film, to a musical version on stage? So I think the thing that I said to you, and this holds true, is that Heather's partially is as wonderful as it is because of Winona Ryder. Okay. And I love her so much. And she just brings such an attitude to that character. Mm -hmm. I think it is a very fun adaptation, but I think it is different. You know, I Mm -hmm. think it is um, a little bit more biting, a little bit more cynical than the original, even though the original is, you know, has all the same story beats. Mm -hmm. It has this kind of edge to it that you didn't get in the movie. I kind of want to go the opposite direction, at Mm. least with the West End adaptation. I was familiar with it. I had seen it on stage in a high school production of it, as in the high school version. What's the difference? Not much. They just don't swear. (laughs) But all of the murder, sex, drugs, all of that stays in. Which is weird for a high school adaptation. I know. know. I'm like, just if it's about high schoolers, then let the high schoolers do the version that's about high schoolers. Seeing the West End production, there were a lot of changes Mm -hmm. that I didn't know about and was surprised watching going in. It seems like the writers of the musical saw what a cult following the off-Broadway version had, which was a pretty cynical, edgy, dark Mm -hmm. musical based off of a hit film, comedy film. And then it made it more socially conscious and aware Mm. and weaved a bit more social commentary in a movie that ultimately is supposed to be very cynical. Mm -hmm. And so I had two minds about that. I was like, on one hand, I think it's really cool to have a film that isn't afraid to delve more into suicide without directly sensationalizing it, like some other musicals I know. Mm. Um, (laughs) But it also felt like, it, it felt kind of like it was taking away the teeth of it to spell mm. out a message sure. that I think was already implied if you like the material. Mm-hmm. It's silly. The rock music is excellent. Uh, and I think there are a lot of really good jokes. And some of the changes I thought were for the better. Some of the changes, I think, were just added on. And Mm -hmm. I also thought some Mm -hmm. of the performances took away a little bit of the edge and cynicism from the characters that is necessary because you don't want to completely sympathize with any character and their actions in a film that is ultimately meant to be satire. Mm -hmm. So that was my takeaway from watching this latest pro shot. Evil Dead the musical, I know we didn't both get a chance to see it, but it is incredible how their concept 
was to make a dedication to this fan base and to this sensation. And then ultimately it became famously the only musical with a splash zone. <laughs> so people will show up in rain slickers and the floor will be tarped. And there will be specifically performances with blood and performances without blood that are specifically designed to be like a Shamu show, but with a chainsaw. <laughs> also included is Cannibal, which I recently acquired the... You can, you can watch the full musical on YouTube. It's, it's out there. But I found a copy of the DVD that was released by Troma. They are excellent at making a version that has a ton of special features because there's one segment that is dedicated specifically to fan-made productions of Cannibal. And they're so creative and go beyond just what the film made. And it's so hard to do a film with this kind of cultural context to it. But even so, as far as Germany, they were doing productions of Cannibal the Musical, which like, unless you know Matt Stone and Trey Parker or you live in Colorado, you have no idea who Alfred Packer is. Yeah. <laughs> I am so curious. I want to know so badly what their t how they got into this show and wh why they produced it there. And I want to see more clips because there are some clips that they show on the DVD. You have no idea what part of the film it's supposed to be from. <laughs> So while these films are a lot of fun, one thing that is in common with all of them is that a lot of hard work and dedication was put into them to the extent that it caused a few safety hazards. Amazingly, a lot of these movie sets caught on fire at the same time <laughs> or almost got somebody severely injured or killed. Uh, and so I have a list of those and I'm just going to go down them. Yeah. So to start with, we have the Rocky Horror Picture Show which is obviously one of the more fun, campy titles on here. From what I read, not the case at all about what it was like to work on that film because they only had five weeks to shoot it. They shot it in an actual castle during very cold weather conditions. So every shot that they took for this, they were putting in all of their energy just so that they can get out of the cold. Like that famous pool scene where they all jump into the pool together and are over each other. They were told the sooner we get the shot wrapped, the sooner you get out of that freezing pool. Oh my gosh. So they're all frantically like lusting after each other and jumping over each other because they are uncomfortable and that they all just want to get out of that pool at the same time. And that was actually how Susan Sarandon caught pneumonia oh. while she was on set. It's so sad. Um, they had one room in the castle that was specifically a space heater room that they would all use because it was a leaky castle with drafts going through it. And eventually that room caught on fire and they couldn't use it anymore because a fire broke out in the castle. So that's one thing. Uh, Phantom of the Paradise, there is a scene where the main character has his face disfigured. <laughs> Uh, within a record pressing machine. So that wasn't a prop. That was a real machine that they decided, hey, we're going to put this like wooden chalk in the middle of to kind of like pry it open. Super think like, safe. Think like in Star Wars when the garbage compactor, they're trying to hold it open. Think like that, except for the shot where he puts his head in, it snapped. And so he had to pull his head out at the last minute or else it would have completely closed on him. That's terrifying. Uh, repo, there's a lot of fire, and at one point some leaves caught on fire and that lit the set, and the main actor, uh, Alexa Vega, almost 
caught her hair on fire by walking past a bunch of torches. Oh. And crazy, right? We're not done. Uh, <laughs> and then it's specifically in the film Cannibal, there's a scene where they have to cross the Green River. And it's actually the Boulder Creek right here near us. And they thought, okay, so we're just going to do a shot where we all walk in one at a time and then pretend to be swept away by the river. Well, the first guy runs in. He's not acting. The current was way stronger than they thought it was going to be. And as soon as they saw him go in, they realized, okay, we're fucked. And they all had to follow him on that single shot. Oh, no. And they all were freezing and wondered, we, why didn't we just shoot it on the edge of the river where we could stand up? We would have gotten the same effect. Nobody would have been able to tell the difference. So it was like a college student mistake of them thinking that they were strong enough to fight a river current and then ultimately regretting that immediately afterwards. <laughs> so because the films all had very loose common, t uh, because the films had a lot of commonalities that weren't very in-depth but still really fun to look at and ponder over, we decided we were going to give out what we're calling accolades that are basically just awards to certain films on this list based on very obscure or niche categories mm -hmm. that we came up with. Uh, Amber, would you like to introduce the first segment that we have for Our these accolades? Our first award yeah. is picking one set that you would have to work for one day on. After all of that information that I just About shared. how everything was a shit show. <laughs> right, so... Okay, my vote would probably be for Cannibal, I think. Really? I think so, because I think it would be chaotic, mm. but very funny. I don't think that, like, jumping in a river would be the worst thing ever, mm. comparatively to, like, being in a castle and catching mm -hmm. pneumonia. Although being in a castle would be cool. But uh, I think everybody there was just, like, so silly. And it was just, like, such a, like, camp project. Like, they mm -hmm. knew going into it that it was just going to be campy and culty. It's really fun listening to this commentary that they have on the DVD and them criticizing the mistakes that they made because they didn't know this was the first film they ever made. But when you watch it, these are all things that make the film more endearing mm -hmm. and more fun. So I think it'd be really fun to watch a bunch of guys try to figure out mm -hmm. uh, what to do in a certain situation and just having it be very like ad-libbed as they go along. And it seems like it was just a bunch of friends and students that they knew from the surrounding area. However, I don't think I would choose that option because one thing is I hate being outdoors. <laughs> I think those would be miserable conditions at one point. It's like they're in a very visibly cold area. I don't think that would be a ton of fun You don't want to trudge through like waist deep snow? No, no. But while watching some of the action scenes might be a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And it's cool that they visit like actual historical sites from Alfred Packer's life. That, uh courtroom that he gets tried in is the actual courtroom that Alfred Packer was tried in and they're like we thought that was so cool until we realized it wasn't important at all and nobody would care <laughs> so all we got from that was the fact that we had terrible sound Aww. and that we should have just shot it in a better courtroom <laughs> I think my vote would be it's a toss-up between Little Shop and Evil Dead, mm, specifically, because mm -hmm. I would love to be in that room where they're figuring out a bunch of special effects and how 
to translate the screen moment to the audience. But I think specifically Little Shop, you have Frank Oz on set, you have Rick Moranis and Steve Martin and Vincent Gardenia, all of these people who are obviously really good at improv and doing this kind of campy gimmicky setup. It felt like the least experimental one because it felt like a lot of people who were very skilled in their craft and knew what they were doing. Mm And I want to see that puppet up close so bad. I love the Audrey 2 so much. Our next accolade. All right. This one is very specific. I came up with it on the spot, but I think it makes sense. So if you had to date a person and all you know is that their personality is centered around one of the films on this list, which one would you choose or prefer? Man, I feel like that would give you some insufferable people. Yes, like, that's why I, that's why I came people. up with it. That's why I came up with it. <laughs> um, oh gosh, like if you pick Sweeney Todd, it's gonna be somebody who's like super morose. Yeah, super, like what a downer. Or they just listen to show tunes all day long and Maybe? don't have like a lot of, I don't know, exposure outside of that. But like, if you pick. The Nightmare Before Christmas or Repo, I feel like that's a person who's going to be living in 2008 all the time. A lot of hot topic. Yeah, a kind lot of, of hot topic. And I don't think I could live with that. Rocky Horror Picture Show. I love the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I don't talk about it 24-7 all around the year. I'm excited to talk about it, but like, it's such a varied pool. You have no idea what kind of person you're meeting if... Their one thing is focusing on the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Like, it, it's a very big toss-up based okay. on that fact. I'm going to go obscure. Okay. I'm going to date a pegger. What do you What I, do you mean when what, you're saying you're dating a pegger? Innuendo? What? Yeah. No. Uh, Phantom of the Paradise is my vote. Okay, so Phantom of the Paradise. Uh, why? It's very wholesome. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a very cute but chaotic film. And I think the subculture around it sounds, like, very pure and mm-hmm. very, like, lovely. And, you know, that would mean the person I'm dating is Canadian and they get free healthcare. Sometimes they're French. Apparently Daft Punk oh, based their right. entire image around this film, which I guess thank you for the giving helmets. us Daft Punk. Look it up if you haven't seen this movie. Mm-hmm. Compare the Phantom of the Paradise's helmet with Daft Punk. You'll see it. I, okay, I'm taking a big risk here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like this answer could easily change. I think I'm going to go with Heathers. Okay. Because, specifically, I think it has a good sense of humor overall, while still having the best of intentions at mm-hmm. the same time. Some of these had jokes that didn't age very well. And with Heathers, that's kind of the point, is that people are awful and I like the suicide prevention message of it as well. So I, th- I think I would be curious dating somebody who really liked Heather's because I feel like they would at the very least have a decent sense of humor. They'd be probably very snarky. You think so? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. I could, I could do that though. I like interesting, <laughs> I like memorable conversations, you know? Uh, our next accolade is if you had to adopt one aesthetic for a year. Okay, so if you had the look, the style, and the feel of one of these films, which one you would go with? Um, 
that's hard. It's very similar to the dating question. Mm-hmm, it is. I was just thinking that. But it's like how you would express yourself. Not like who, what you would look for in a partner, but how you would express yourself. Not repo. I don't no, I don't think repo would not. be my 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 tea. You know, I'm going to go with Sweeney Todd. I think that Victorian choice. era kind of where sometimes not mm-hmm. worried about it being that spiffy looking, yeah. but just kind of owning it and being prominent as you walk through a space. Mm-hmm. I think that'd be kind of fun. It kind of would strike me as kind of steampunk, you know? A you little come bit. come off a little steampunk. Oh, no. Wait, <laughs> I made a mistake then because, like, some people can pull that off. I am not the person who can pull that off. No oh, well. take back. <laughs> I'm stuck with that. All right. What about you? Um, okay, so I'm kind of torn. Uh, part of me wants to choose Heather's. Because, mm-hmm. like, those, like, suit jackets and the short yeah. skirts are iconic. Mm-hmm. And, like, I could pull that off for a year. Sure. I think I could pull that off for a year. Um, but part of me also wants to pick Little Shop just because it's so, like, like you said, gimmicky. It's so cheesy. Mm-hmm. And, are you thinking like, specifically what Audrey wears in the film? Not specifically what Audrey wears, <laughs> but just kind of, like, inspired by the, like, stagedness of Mm -hmm. it like it's very like we're aware this is a musical and we're gonna like not hide that at all we're also not sure like even what decade it's in, right Mm because it says in an earlier of a decade not too long before our own so it's kind of like the mix of three different kind of got like the motown girl group and Mm -hmm. then you've got like the traditional love ballad and then you've got like the futuristic plant from space i'm also thinking the orange scrivello jacket Mm -hmm. the dentist jacket and everything he wore was just amazing i thought and i was hoping you would answer cannibal and just wear like have this trapper (laughs) aesthetic for like an entire year going into Uh, work yeah i don't think so i don't know if that would fly (laughs) all right so which of these films do you think has the most lack of a plot least plot <laughs> yes like like not even like the least plot but like it's not cohesive and it's the least important of everything that's mm, happening okay because that's very common with some of this so that's that's an important distinction it's not the mm-hmm. least amount of plot it is the most lack of plot it's the mo- it's the like most expendable plot mm, like mm-hmm. like the film doesn't lean on it too heavily mm-hmm. i mean i think the most obvious answer mm-hmm. is rocky horror mm-hmm. you know you you don't go to rocky horror for the plot mm-hmm. you go to rocky horror to like yell at the screen right. and dress up um, it kind of forgets what the plot is right about by the like, second half if you even watch the second half like even if if you even make it that far in the movie like everybody i always knew mm-hmm. who went to Rocky Horror would leave halfway through. Because, mm-hmm. like, after that, it kind of gets weird. And you don't, and by like... that point, you're so, like, drunk and right. fucked on, but it's like, who cares? It's, like, 2 a.m. in the morning, and you're mm-hmm. like, ah. And the castle's a spaceship. All right. right. Here we go. <laughs> um, but I would also argue that's kind of similar to... This, this might be a bold claim. It's similar to Phantom of the Paradise in that mm, sense. Mm-hmm. Because Phantom of the Paradise, while it has more of a straight line narrative, mm-hmm. it also waffles a lot in order to get to certain beats. Sure. Like, it, like, character motivations don't feel consistent the entire way through. And it's more like the shape of 
these beats that we want to see and these motifs that we want to explore. Not saying it as a criticism of it at all, Mm -hmm. but it definitely is like we're getting from one period and one emotion to the next, to the next, and to the next. And it's a lot of like cool aesthetic choices that link a bunch of awesome music together. Mm -hmm. Um, That's fair. That's a good point. But also there's Repo. Yeah, I was thinking about that in the conversation that we had right after Mm -hmm. we watched it. We were talking about like, oh, like the world building didn't matter at all. Mm -hmm. Like this conceptual, like hyper-capitalistic society that is based on repossessing organs. Like that is a scary concept in itself. Um, And like the illustrated transitions that they did that were all about the world building mm-hmm. had really nothing to do with the actual plot. It felt like it filled time mm-hmm. because then if you listen to what they were singing, they were saying exactly what was just covered in these like comic book style exposition dumps. And it felt almost like it was insecure because of that. Like it was mm. like, oh, we don't think the audience will be able to follow this if we don't spell out exactly what happened and that they can't infer certain things from what characters are saying and so it goes from world building to a lot of the movie is just introducing the characters Mm -hmm. and the plot doesn't really even happen until the last 10 minutes right where like everything unfolds and i think one of my major issues with repo was that the protagonist is basically a non-entity she like doesn't matter she has no personality Mm -hmm. Not and, uncommon. Yes. I, very 2008, as I was saying. <laughs> you know, like, uh, I think I said to you, it reminded me of Joss Whedon because it's like this very, like, pretend proto-feminist, like... <sighs> that hurt. That was a deep cut. I'm but sorry. Yes. Yeah, I know. I, I hate to say it, but, like, <laughs> she doesn't matter. And it is revealed when you get to the last 10 minutes, the story is not even about her. Like, no. it doesn't matter. It's all about her dad. Mm-hmm. And, like... It, that drives me nuts. Like, what was this whole, like, I want to be independent, I'm a big girl, blah, 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 mm-hmm. like, Munchausen by proxy bullshit, you know, that we had to sit through. I think I read that that whole aspect of the storyline, that he was her father, might have been added in mm. for the film specifically to okay. add another layer. I yeah. don't think it was as prominent in the stage version. Okay. So yeah. that might have been tacked on, even. It, ju- not, it made it very certain, weak. But it feels right, yeah, yeah? It feels like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think I'm going to go with... Eh, I'll go with Rocky. Mm-hmm. I feel like Rocky is more about vibes than it is about Absolutely. a plot. Yeah. Because I can't... You can't, like... At least Repo, you, you have, like, a premise. And with Phantom, you have all of these, like motifs and kind of a Mm -hmm. cultural narrative with rocky horror it's two teenagers get a flat tire and find a castle and you can say what happens but it's not like a neat summation yeah beyond that Uh what about you um yeah i would go with that too i mean i the plot of having a transsexual transylvanian Mm -hmm. uh nymphomaniac alien Mm-hmm. What have you? A gender Nazi, if you will. Like, obviously, that is the most tightly written plot you're ever going to come across. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it probably 
a dearth of plot, I would mm-hmm. say. Yeah, absolutely. And then our next one is contest for best love ballad. Because there are quite a few between all of these. You, you can't, can't have a musical right. without one. Yeah, right. you were going to say it. Yeah. All right, so the nominees for Best Love Ballad are I Didn't Know I'd Love You So Much from Repo, eh. <laughs> Suddenly Seymour from Little Shop, mm. uh, the preeminent classic When I Was on Top of You from Cannibal, <laughs> uh, which is about a horse. It's about Get a horse. Get your mind out of the gutter. It's so good. It's about a horse. <laughs> um, Old Souls from Phantom. Which has a lot of love songs, as we were discussing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, this is probably the most iconic of them. Slow one. It kind of sounds like a Bond theme song yeah. if you go back and listen to she's it. She's kind of dressed like Stevie Nicks. And mm-hmm. it's kind of, it's very like, <sighs> what an image. I don't want to have to buy that on physical media because I've spent so much. But I feel like <laughs> I need it. Anyways. Uh, next is uh, Sweeney Todd, My Friends, The Love Ballad to the Razor. You have a couple of other love ballads, of course, in Sweeney Todd. You have Joanna, and then you have mm-hmm. um, Mrs. Lovett's song about Sweeney you know, by, by the, the seaside. Sea. But My Friends is kind of the most iconic and most part of the like horror, mm-hmm. like part of the deep at aesthetic last, of it. At last, my arm is complete again. And it's like, just, what a it, sends, it sends mm-hmm. shivers down your spine. Yeah. Housewares employee from Evil Dead. Uh, <laughs> 17 from Heathers. Uh, and then Simply Meant to Be from Nightmare Before Christmas. Which is like the last 40 seconds of the film, mm-hmm. but it's perfect, succinct. <laughs> I I mean this is very biased, but I have to go with Suddenly Seymour. That's what I was. Gonna I know say. it's like it's not fair. I even considered nominating somewhere that's green just mm-hmm. to balance it out a little bit. But when it's Alan Menken and when it's that wholesome of a song mm-hmm. that also has as many jokes as it does, it's not poking fun of love ballads at all. Right. It is a real song that has jokes in it. And right uh, here, here's my reasoning. Okay, yeah. like. I think when I was on top of you, excellent wordplay. I love the reprise. I think that it is just like, for a song that is all innuendo, mm-hmm. it is also very heartfelt. It, it's also weirdly good. Yeah. I wasn't expecting... That's like, the problem with Cannibal, I think, as a whole, is mm-hmm. that a lot of it is super catchy. And they go on to write but Book of Mormon. But it's so dumb. Yeah, they go on to write Book of Mormon, which isn't surprising, given, mm-hmm. like, in retrospect, but, like, they were 22 when they wrote this music, and so, like, that's the one that I think on my first viewing that stuck in my head the most, mm-hmm. is because I'm like, well, I want to sing that. <laughs> You can't sing it in public. Oh, I totally could. <laughs> what? Okay, bet. Well, I, it's a dare. All Fine. right. All right. I'm ready. <laughs> All right. So. Um, mm-hmm. But I think you have that one, right? Yeah. And then you have My Friends, which is pivotal to the plot and is so, like, shiver-inducing. Mm-hmm. And you have Seventeen, which is like this... This beautiful moment in the midst of chaos mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, maybe we're going to take a step back. We're going to take a breather. It's like this love song that is both a romantic thing, but also a like, remember who you are and mm-hmm. like, take care of yourself and this whole thing. It kind of follows the same plot uh, purpose as Suddenly Seymour mm-hmm. is that it shows it like, 
well, suddenly see more in Somewhere That's Green where they envision a better future mm-hmm. that you know is not going to happen. Right. And with 17, it's this heartbreaking thing of lost innocence and mm-hmm. lost youth and the prayer that you might regain some of that back. But my argument basically hinges on the fact that when mm-hmm. I listen to Suddenly Seymour, I get this feeling of just like, wow. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Rick Moranis Like is a my hunk. heart. <laughs> so, you know, there mm-hmm. you go. <laughs> like it, ma- it makes Rick Moranis easily a love interest mm-hmm. and like a leading man. And like, why hasn't he been the leading man right? anymore? Yeah. Other than the fact that he doesn't want to act as much, but like, He's fantastic. Mm -hmm. He's perfect for that role. Moving on, we have, and this, like, spoiler territory, sorry. (laughs) We're going into the best death, and these are very subjective choices for each film. So if you care about knowing that deaths are coming ahead of time as part of your experience, you might want to skip over this a little (laughs) bit. For our nominees, we have, of course, Eddie from Rocky Horror. When we saw it happen in Denver... (laughs) <laughs> it's it's a character that you meet suddenly. You've been hearing about him, and then you meet him suddenly. He sings one song, and then he's immediately killed. Boom. Gone. And, and I remember there was a woman behind me that goes, Eddie dies? And I'm like, you just met him. <laughs> it's so good. Aw, uh, Eddie. Repo, I honestly had trouble remembering certain characters dying, but I did remember that Blind Mag dies mm-hmm. in a pretty significant way. Yeah. And it is sad. I chose Orange Scrivello from Little Shop, the evil sadistic dentist, because I think he has a unique and fun one. We have Belle from Cannibal, who has a notable action sequence at the end of the film. We have Beef from Phantom, Mm -hmm. who surprisingly, I I was reading that one of the producers uh, who worked on the film, when he saw that death sequence happen, he immediately started crying. Oh my because gosh. It, because it was similar to another musician's death that happened oh no. on stage one time. And he asked Brian De Palma if he would take it out of the film out of respect for that guy. And De Palma said, no. And they kept it in anyways. And a fuck you to you in particular. But also, like, I'm like, yes, electrocution is sad. I see why he kept it in. He's it's a like, really cool sequence, though. Yeah, no, and it was. It, I thought it was fun, and it, it's reminiscent of Andrew Lloyd Webber's mm-hmm. rendition of it later. Mm-hmm. We have Mrs. Lovett from Sweeney Todd. Rest in peace, Angela. Um, we have Linda from Evil Dead, which is a very gory chainsaw sequence involving a severed head and a very high A belt from the lead of the show. It's so good. And then we, of course, have the titular Heather Chandler from the musical Heathers, who chokes and then becomes an angel, a sadistic angel for the rest of the production. <laughs> and it's so fun. So, like, in horror musical land, if you die, you don't necessarily have to go away. No, because why would you? You can just <laughs> come back and haunt the protagonist. I think this list is... An excellent list. Mm -hmm. For me, I think it comes down to Heather Chandler Uh and Love It. Okay. I like these are two deaths that have kind of different effects on the musical. Mm -hmm. Like Heather Chandler's death kind of is the impetus for the rest of Heather's. But it's not like sad or shocking. It's, Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, okay. Like, 
Oh, so now this, she's is a ghost, where, this, this is, is where, where the story's going. Yeah. I didn't think it was going here, but here we are. Yeah. Love It's Death in Sweeney Todd gets me, though. Like, mm-hmm. that is the moment when I'm watching it. Like, you feel this sense of dread building mm-hmm. and that building whole... and building. And mm-hmm. then the last, like, you know, 30 minutes, everything that happens, and you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> and, you know, when she gets pushed into the oven, you're like, oh, my God. Like, mm-hmm. And you see them waltzing, and you know exactly yes, where this yes. is going to end. And you just, you're holding your breath, and it's, oh, such a sequence. To your credit, you also picked the two that I think have the most consequence to the actual plot. This is true. Uh, this is true. Because most of these names, I'm just now realizing, are deaths that have to happen for the plot to advance mm-hmm. and not necessarily not necessarily for the plot itself. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, well, we need to show that this person is crazy, so we have them kill this person. Or we need to have a sad moment happen, so mm-hmm. Blind Mag dies. Right. Uh, with Heather Chandler and with Lovett, these are moments that are direct consequences of the plot and have large echoes of what happens mm-hmm. yeah. subsequently. So I think... When it comes down to it, I would choose Mrs. Lovett mm-hmm. just because that is such, that moment hits for me mm-hmm. that I, wow. Um, if I had to pick a death that was in relation to the character itself and not just like, oh, what a cool moment. That was a cool death. Cause yeah. like an evil dead, I don't care about the character. It's a really cool death and it's a great belt sequence. It's really fun. But to me, there will always be a dear space in my heart for mm-hmm. Eddie uh, in Rocky Horror, because he has this incredible song, he comes out with all of this energy, and then we immediately dispatch him, and there's a great pun of one from the vaults. <laughs> and then that number and that death when it happens in a theater with a shadow cast and a participating audience, there's so much energy and joy during that whole sequence, and it's always fun to watch mm-hmm. the actor who plays Eddie milk the fact that they're doing that role. Our next accolade is Catchiest Score. This is a hard one. Yes. This is a really tough one. I'm going, for myself, I'm going to go ahead and say not Rocky Horror. While I love Rocky Horror a lot, I think it's a very varied score that Mm -hmm. has a lot of different strengths. And when I hear it, obviously I feel very happy, but it's not always in my head all Mm -hmm. the time, all year round. Uh, not Repo. I would say that's potentially one of the least catchy scores. Yeah, it's not really focused on the You can't really go around singing that. <laughs> yeah. Cannibal is very catchy and very good. I would say that there's maybe one or two songs from that that sticks in my head at any given moment. In defense of Cannibal, mm-hmm. the morning after I saw it, I was going around singing the baked potato line Spadunkle. over and over. Yeah, it's a good... Like, it, I, like, I couldn't stop. <laughs> it's a good earworm. I am tied between Little Shop or mm-hmm. The Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, Little Shop, it's hard because it's Alan Menken, and who is the Disney Renaissance composer, and so obviously has some experience with songs that will not leave your head. <laughs> um, but Nightmare Before Christmas, I think, is an understated masterpiece of a score and of lyrical writing of like just deliciousness in some of the lines that get delivered in that film. So I'm tossed up. What about you? I think I would go with Little Shop. I think when you listen to it, it has so many strengths that Mm. are like 
very evident throughout and it feels cohesive throughout mm-hmm. one of the things that disqualifies rocky horror also is that it doesn't it, like the songs aren't a cohesive score mm-hmm. like they're individual songs and they're each individually fun yeah but they don't feel like a cohesive unit the way that um little shop of horrors does mm-hmm. little shop of horrors just feels so tied together mm-hmm. um and they're bops, you know? They're bops. I don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. They're really fun songs. I might have to go with Little Shop, but, like, Nightmare Before Christmas as a whole, like, e- even with Little Shop, the film itself is an altered version and has had songs interchangeably taken out between the stage version and the film version. Um, I think the film version's better. I, I think I'm going to go with Nightmare Before Christmas because it, there's such a warmth in my heart mm-hmm. from that musical. And it came much later in my life than Little Shop did. But there is something about how it's a journey that I don't think I skip any song from that score. Mm-hmm. And then finally, we have which one do we think is actually the most horrifying? I don't think this is a contest, is it? What What would you say? I'd say pretty easily. It's Sweeney Todd. Oh, okay. We do disagree. Interesting. Okay. I think Sweeney Todd, like I said, builds up so much dread. Mm -hmm. And every time I end it, I'm just like eviscerated. Mm -hmm. The little kid being the one who makes it out and like, that just gets me. I'm a sucker, okay, for, a, like, a traditionally structured tragedy. Mm-hmm. Like, Hamlet, Death of a Salesman. Like, oh, I love some tragic irony. Mm-hmm. And the horror, I think, of Sweeney Todd is not necessarily in the gross-out factor of the chopping up the bodies and mm-hmm. we're eating people. and Like, right. that is pretty gross and that is pretty horrible. And they make a bunch of jokes out of it. Yeah. But the real horror is the consequences of our actions. Mm. And that just, oh, so dark. It's delicious. Okay. Here's why I wouldn't be scared to be in the Sweeney Todd world. I like the idea of, well, I can't say that on a podcast, but I was going to say, <laughs> oh, rich people get eaten. Like, I'm fine. <laughs> like, this is I think fine. you can say that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some capitalist thing of it. Um, no, why I would argue against Sweeney Todd, there's a lot of humor built into it. Mm -hmm. And while there is a lot of sadness and melancholy in it, I also think there's a lot of, like, fun playfulness in it. Mm -hmm. My vote was Repo. Okay. First of all, I don't really like the characters. Mm -hmm. I kind of like how, at some points, it felt like I was watching Succession Mm. with the three children of Roddy. But it's a very terrifying premise and one that made me uncomfortable and feel like seedy and dirty about Mm -hmm. and I don't know I just feel like living in that world would be horribly depressing and like seeing celebrities that have a different person's face put on top of their face every Mm -hmm. time they go out and I I don't know I just felt and everybody's addicted Mm -hmm. to drugs everybody's addicted to elective surgeries Mm -hmm. and People are being munchausened into their homes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It, it feels very dark and sinister, and I just Definitely. would, I just would not enjoy living in a world with those people. 
I think my thing with Repo would be, like, conceptually, I think it's probably the most horrifying. Mm-hmm. I think as a musical, it doesn't pay off. Sure. Because the concept and the actual plot of the opera are very different things. Mm-hmm. Like, the plot of the opera, you know, her, her father, you know, is a Repo man, and it's, uh, like, very ironic and tragic, and all these things happen. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's very traditional. It's straightforward. Sure. I think the concept is horrifying because there's a realness to it. Mm-hmm. Of like hyper capitalistic. The healthcare system is so fucked that mm-hmm. like I could see us getting to that point. There's also an entire regime change that happens. Like in Willy Wonka fashion, the entire company that runs the world is mm-hmm. given to a 17 year old. Who's just been let out of the house for the first time. Right. And I could see that having some consequences too. So I think like conceptually, like I said, mm. probably the scariest. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it pays off for me. So like I don't find it the most horrifying musical. Mm-hmm. If you were going to take some of these premises more straightforward, if you like took away the comedic aspect or like the tongue-in-cheekness mm-hmm. of Cannibal or of Heather's, Mm-hmm. Those would be also pretty horrifying, yeah. but not in their actual effect. Like okay. if you stripped them of the trappings and you were just like, this is the concept. Like Alfred Packer ate some people and like, mm-hmm. ooh, that's, that's awful. Like, but that's also horrible. you have like Southern Cyclopses and right. <laughs> other things that exist. I don't know. It's, it's interesting to think of like, okay, if I was an NPC, if I was a side character mm. and I just watch these things happening, I don't think it would feel that different from how I live my day-to-day life <laughs> now. <laughs> Honestly. <Fair. laughs> Uh, Um, Yeah, yeah, so I think there's some different answers to that. You could look at that in different ways. (laughs) And with that, those are all of our accolades. Let us know if you have any strong opinions that differ from ours. With that, uh, do you have any closing thoughts about this dive that we did? I thought this was such a fun Halloween list to do. I haven't been able to watch a lot of movies recently, but, you know, being able to watch Cannibal, like, cheered me up for a couple hours you know and like it was so fun to come up here and we watched phantom of the paradise together Mm -hmm. and we watched repo uh together and even though like repo kind of sucked it was still fun to hang out and like watch something spooky most of repo we were just like talking about concepts that the movie was Mm -hmm. bringing up and then we ended up like not following the plot for a few minutes and it's like okay wait what's happening (laughs) i'll check i'll check wikipedia real quick we'll see where we are Mm -hmm. okay there we are yeah i mean obviously i don't think i have to say much because um this is the genre that kind of directed my whole life course it directed me into theater it brought me out and to socialize a lot more with rocky horror and it's kind of how we ended up meeting each other and started doing this so i i feel like that's all that really needs to be said about uh this dive so thanks very much for coming on it with me Yeah, definitely. Uh, Let us know if there is a subject or list you'd like us to look at and find out what's in the box. Uh, Amber, would you like to make some plugs? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at Traveling Mitten and Girl. And I'm on Letterboxd at R-A-E Wood, Ray Wood, uh, and Graham. 
Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Instagram42. That's I-N-S-T-A-G-R-A-H-A-M underscore four two. You can find me on Letterboxd as Trundle the Great. That's T-R-U-N-D-L-E-T-H-E-G-R and then the number eight. Uh, you can also follow us on Instagram at What's in the Box. That's W-A-T-S-I-N-T-H-E-B-O-X-D. And tune in next month when we talk about all of the international features that we caught at the Denver Film Festival. Thank you so much if you're a new listener. And as we always say, let's do the time warp again. See you next time.